welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. In this episode, we will be looking at the 1941 film, The Reluctant Dragon. In this series, we won't be doing a deep analysis of the film or giving a bunch of behind-the-scenes facts, but rather giving our impression of the overall film. And there's not really any songs from this film, but, eh, you know, you know how it goes normally. We will also be giving a score to the film, unfortunately not ranking the songs. So grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the episode. The Reluctant Dragon is a 1941 American film produced by Walt Disney, directed by Alfred Weaker for the live-action segments, and Hamilton Lusk for the animated segments. With Jack Cutting, Ube Eeks, and Jack Keeney as sequence directors, The Reluctant Dragon was released by RKO Radio Pictures on June 27, 1941. The premise is essentially a tour of the then-new Walt Disney Studios facility in Burbank, California. The film stars radio comedian Robert Benchley, many Disney staffers as themselves, and Walt Disney. The first 20 minutes of the film are in black and white, and then the remainder is in Technicolor. Much of the film is live action with four short animated sequences inserted into the runtime. The first is a black and white segment featuring Casey Jr. from Dumbo, and the other three are Technicolor cartoons, the first of those being Baby Weems, presented as a storyboard, Goofy's How to Ride a Horse, and the extended length short The Reluctant Dragon, based upon Kenneth Graham's book of the same name. The total length of the animated parts is 40 minutes, with the overall film being 74 minutes. The budget for the movie was $600,000, or just under $12 million today, and the box office was 960000 or just over $19 million today. And according to supplemental information on the DVD, this film was rushed into production to help keep the studio solvent. The start of World War II closed uh, Europe to the American movies, and this cut off the much-needed revenue for Disney. When it was released, it did save the studio, but it was not well-received and was heavily criticized by the public. Some critics and audiences were put off by the fact that the film was not a new Disney animated feature in the vein of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or Pinocchio, but essentially a collection of four short cartoons and various live-action vignettes. On the other hand, Photoplay, an American film magazine, said that it was one of the cleverest ideas to pop into the fertile mind of Walt Disney and results in the rare combination of a cook's tour of the Disney studio a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the Mickey, of Mickey Mousedom, and two of Disney's latest cartoon features, cleverly thought out and executed. The film released in the middle of Disney's animator strike of 1941. Strikers picketed the film's premiere with signs that attacked Disney for unfair business practices, low pay, lack of recognition, and favoritism. At one theater, sympathizers paraded down the street wearing a dragon costume bearing the legend, The Reluctant Disney, (laughs) or or holding large cardboard signs depicting Walt Disney as a dragon. I wish I could find photos of that because, you know, they're Disney animators, so it probably looks amazing seeing Disney as as a dragon. Can I go wear a dragon costume and protest outside of some certain uh, Supreme Court justices? (laughs) The Reluctant Justices? (laughs) The Reluctant Justices? Yeah. The live-action parts of the story were written by Ted Sears, Al Perkins, Larry Clemens, Bill Cottrell, Henry Clark, and Robert Benchley. The Reluctant Dragon segment was written by Kenneth Graham, who wrote the original book, 
Erdman Penner, and T. He. Which, going back in our things here, we got T. He again. He hasn't shown up for a while. And I, that's probably because, you know, I don't think we mentioned this. This was not on Disney Plus, so we no. didn't watch this originally. Yeah, we took so a little. So we're kind of going back a bit in our order because. Yeah, we took a little trip it, back in time. Yeah, it occurred to me that it was on there now, and I'm like, well, guess we got to go watch that now. Yeah, but it's also in my research for it. It also wasn't part of the Disney animated canon like the other films have been. I I don't know. Which uh, is interesting, but if you look up a list of Disney animated films, this is definitely. Mm. Up there, as it should, it should be, because I feel like there's enough animation in it that... Yeah, um, and the baby... Uh, going back into my thing here. And the Baby Weems segment was written by Joe Grant, Dick Humor, and John Miller. The cinematography for the film is by Burt Glennon. It was edited by Paul Weatherwax. And the music is by Frank Churchill and Larry Morey. The production company is Walt Disney Studios. The film stars Robert Benchley as himself, Francis Guilford as Doris, a Disney studio artist, Buddy Pepper as Humphrey, the studio guide, uh, Nana Bryant as Mrs. Benchley, Claude Allister as Sir Giles in the Reluctant Dragon uh, segment, Barnett Parker as the dragon, Billy Lee as the boy, Florence Gill as herself and Clara, Duck, uh, Clara Cluck, Clarence Nash as himself and Donald Duck, Norman Ferguson as himself, Ward Kimball as himself, Jimmy Lusk as himself. He was Jimmy the Baby at the beginning of uh, uh, Baby Weems' live-action part, which I wonder if he's Hamilton Lusk's uh, then-baby, because that's not that common of a name. Alan Ladd as himself, Truman Warwood as himself, Hamilton McFadden as himself, Maurice Murphy as himself, uh, with Walt Disney as himself, and the staff of the Walt Disney Studio as the staff of the Walt Disney Studio. Uh, this is the first full-length feature for Disney where voice actors are credited, uh, which I liked how it had uh, their actual signatures in the yeah. opening credits and everything. I thought that I like was that really a cool. lot. Yeah. yeah. So we're diving right into the plot. Uh, watching it on Disney Plus, we begin with the uh, warning about negative depictions and stereotypes on it, which it didn't have a tobacco warning in this movie, even though there's use of tobacco in it. And then we have the fancy opening credits, like I said, with the actual signatures of the people who worked on the film. And then we have a title card, and to quote it, it says, This picture is made in answer to the many requests to show the backstage life of animated cartoons. P.S. Any resemblance to a regular motion picture is purely coincidental. That's definitely Walt who came up with that title card himself. And the loose plot of the film features Robert Benchley trying to find, or rather avoid finding, Walt Disney, so that he can, at the insistence of his wife, pitch to him the idea of making an animated version of the book by Kenneth Graham. So I have a, a note here saying that the Mickey Avenue slash Dopey Drive signpost that was built specifically for this movie was supposed to be removed afterward. It wasn't, and it still stands at Disney Studios today. Love it. Yeah. And that uh, I just wanted to comment on the fact that when Mrs. Benchley drops Robert off at the studio, she then takes the car to go shopping. That's a funny little gag about married couples, but also a woman driving a car in 1941 was very rare, and I like that they put this in the film. I just love the wife so much, too, as a character, where she's like... Okay, here you go. Bye, dude. <laughs> go ahead and go yeah. talk to Mr. Disney. Yeah. I'm leaving. I'm going I shopping. I got shopping to do. <laughs> yeah. 
We're going to be rich because you're going to talk to Mr. Disney, so I got to go buy some things. Yeah. It's, it's just some, I, I think it was something kind of progressive to show a woman in a movie drive. Because even my grandmother, my grandmother didn't drive until the 80s. <laughs> like, because women just didn't drive from previous generations. Um, so I just, I thought it was really cool to show a woman driving here in this movie that came out in 1941. But diving back into the plot, dodging an overly officious studio guide named Humphrey, Benchley stumbles upon a number of Disney studio operations and learns about the traditional animation process, some of the fa- uh, faucets of which are explained by a staff employee named Dor- Doris, which include, the very first one is the life-drawing classroom where animators learn to caricature people and animals by observing the real thing. And my first note here is that Benchley was very interested in following the curver- the curvaceous lo- uh. Uh, life model into the drawing class, and that there was some adult humor in that in this movie. And also that we this is where we see the smoking in the film because one of the animators that uh, Benchley talks to is outside smoking, and he says, "Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go on in." And my final note for this segment was the Japanese elephant G's. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least they had an Asian woman drawing it, but the music that in the background really make that and everything. No, but it was just boy. Um, did I say Japanese? I meant Chinese. But yeah, it was it was wow. Right, right on the head. First segment of here, we get old classic racism in it. And then the next part. Uh, is a film score and recording session featuring Clarence Nash, the voice of Donald Duck, and Floris Gill, the voice of Clara Cluck. And I found it cool to see the actual voice actors behind the characters being in this film. And I actually did laugh at the gag of Benchley thinking that he was about to hear some beautiful singing for it only to be clucking and henning. And then they they had a little joke in here about foul language. That's foul, F-O-U-L. Like, uh... Yes. And I just, I found it funny. Um, and some of the humor from this film still holds up. It does. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. The next part is a Foley session for a cartoon figure, excuse me, for a cartoon featuring Casey Jr. from Dumbo. And Doris demonstrates the sonograph, mm, sono, sonovox in this scene, which is used to create the train's voice. I have a couple notes here. Uh, anything you want to say about this so far? Or... No, okay. mostly, you know, you have your notes coming up, too, that I found it interesting that they were showing, like, Dumbo and Bambi. Yeah, yeah that's... Like, showing what's coming up, basically. Yeah, the Dumbo was the next movie released in the same year, 1941. And Bambi after that. And then, yeah, Bambi was released in 1942. So they were showing now. Cause, yeah. You know, as we know, animating at that time took years, so mm-hmm. and it's I, interesting. I just wrote down that this is uh, probably my favorite segment so far. And I always find the behind the scenes of making different media fascinating. And in this segment, we hear the Casey Jr. theme for the first time, which I know you're a big fan of the Casey Jr. theme. I do like the Casey Jr. theme. Um, The next segment, we're in the camera room featuring a demonstration of the multi-plane camera. Upon Benchley's entering the camera room, the film turns from black and white to technicolor, a la The Wizard of Oz, prompting the droll Benchley to, in a breaking the fourth wall moment, examine his now red and blue tie and his yellow copy of the Reluctant Dragon storybook and comment, ah, Technicolor. Um, I was very impressed by the change there, too, over to Technicolor, especially because I wasn't expecting it. Like, I just thought it was going to be a black and white film. Yeah. And then the color happened, and I was like, oh, okay. Like. Yeah, I agree. 
I wrote down here that when Doris arrives to show him around the camera room, she asks Ben eventually if he rem if he remembers her, and his answer is yes. But you look so different in Technicolor. <laughs> I um, know that was funny. And then we have a Donald Duck from the uh, short old McDonald Duck appears on uh, the camera stand to help explain the mechanics of animation and the animation photography. And I believe that the multiplane camera technique was actually invented by Walt Disney himself. And it was to give the impression of traveling through the scenery. Like, that's how Bambi opens and everything. And a I, lot of if different... I remember, that is something he made himself. Yeah. Next, we move to the ink and paint department, also known as the Rainbow Room, which includes a Technicolor showcasing montage of the paint-making process, and Doris presents a completed cell of the titular character of Bambi. My only notes for here were that uh, Whistle While You Work and Hi Ho were playing in the background, which I think is very fitting for, you know, Disney workers I to be working. I really too. love this scene, but I love, like, paint and all the colors, so I really liked all the paint-making process and showing all the different, like, pigments. Yeah. And I also wrote that Benchley's flirting with Doris at this point was just plain creepy. It moved from, you know, cute little flirtatious things to... Sir, you have a wife. She's shopping right now. Yeah. 1941 humor, folks. Or 1941 American yes. man's life, I guess. Next, we move to the maquette making uh, department, which makes maquettes or small statues to help the animators envision a character from all sides. Some of the maquettes on display include Aunt Sarah, Cy and Am from Lady and the Tramp, Peter, Captain Hook, Tinkerbell, although it was a very er early version of Tinkerbell, Mr. Smee, uh, John and Michael Darling, and one of the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. Both films were in development at the time, but would be delayed by World War II and not completed until the 1950s. It's so crazy how many, like, things they had going on at the same time. Like, they were working on Bambi and stuff, too, like... Well, I, I recently uh, started listening to a podcast about um, the Sandman uh, mm -hmm. comic uh, in anticipation. I greatly anticipate that show coming out. Uh, it, the con I'm trying to remember the name of the podcast right now. Oh, I can't think of it. But one of the people on the podcast was actually the editor for the Sandman comic. So there's a lot of behind the scenes things. And in the one episode I just listened to, she talked about how when they were working on it, they were doing three different issues at once. They had one that Neil was writing, one that was um, being drawn, and one that was going into final production. And like that, it was a very busy schedule because that's how you have to print comics to have a monthly comic coming out. But yeah, it's uh, very similar here, uh, showing all the different movies that they were making at the same time. And then we have... Oh, also on display is a centurette from Fantasia, which Benchley steals. The employees on duty make Benchley a... Um, maquette of himself, which many years later was purchased and owned by Warner Brothers director Chuck Jones. The sculpture of Robert Benchley was made in advanced and in reality, then gradually destroyed while being filmed. The film was simply shown backwards to make it appear as though the artist was making the bust from scratch. Just a little movie technique there. Interesting. Um, Love it though. Yeah. The next segment is about the storyboard department where a group of storymen test their idea for a new short on Benchley, and the, it's called Baby Weems. The story is shown to the audience in the form of an uh, animatic or story reel using limited animation and is considered among Disney Studios' bests, if unsung, works. Alfred Worker, 
loaned out by 20th Century Fox to direct the film, later became the first outside film director to use the storyboard, which the Disney staff had developed from the predecessor illustrated scripts during the early 1930s. Uh, in the Baby Beam sequence, Mount Rushmore is seen with only George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. The faces were still under construction until October of 1941, and this movie was released before it was finished, which is why Theodore Roosevelt and Thomas Jefferson are missing. Fascinating. Yeah. Next, we move into the room of animators uh, featuring Ward Kimball, Fred Moore, and Norman Ferguson. And Benchley watches Kimball animating Goofy and Ferguson animating Pluto. He and the audience are also treated to a preview of a new Goofy cartoon, How to Ride a Horse, the first of many how-to parodies in the Goofy series. RKO released How to, How to Ride a Horse as a standalone short on February 24th, 1950. How to Ride a Horse was the first of the Goofy how-to cartoons when narrator John Nicolesh was brought in to record the narration. He was asked to read it in a very straightforward manner, as if it was for a serious documentary about, a, uh, about horse riding. He was shocked when he was told that the narration he recorded was to be used in a Goofy cartoon. I can't imagine <laughs> being like, say this seriously, well, it's going to be used for Goofy. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Like, Goofy as in like Disney Goofy? Well, that's like, um, we just recorded our Star Wars episodes, and, oh, what was it? I can't think of his name now. Peter something. But the guy who played Vader physically in the original movies, like in the suit and everything, he thought his portrayal of Vader was going to be Vader. So when he went to go see Star Wars with his friends when it released and heard James Earl Jones' voice, he was like, his friends were like, you're not in this movie. And he was like, no, that's me. They did use the different, like he was, George Lucas never told him. Like he was like he he found out when he saw the movie that his voice wasn't actually in the movie, but my next note here it was that How to Ride Your Horse was the first of several how-to films made in which Goofy doesn't speak. These were made during a period when Goofy's voice artist Pinto Clo uh, Colvig was temporarily unavailable. Uh, I remember these being on the Disney like a different Goofy yeah, how-to on these. the Disney Channel, yeah. And when Ward Kimball shows Robert Benchley how to draw Goofy. The close-ups of his hands drawing the image is actually that of Art Babbitt, and the pencil test of Goofy dancing shown shortly afterwards was animated by Wolfgang Reitherman. The Donald Duck parodies of, of old master paintings were originally made for an unproduced cartoon in which Donald is a guard, is a guard at a museum. Uh, the film was being developed by Frank Tashlin, during his brief, uneventful stay at the studio. The paintings were later used for promotional print stories. And we move on to nearly the last final live-action segment. We have a little one to close out the film, but Humphrey, who has been one step behind Benchley this entire film, finally apprehends him and delivers him in person to Walt Disney, and then forces Disney to sign for him so that he has proof he brought him to him who is in the studio projection room about to screen a newly completed film. Disney invites Benchley to join them to Benchley's slight embarrassment yet relief. The film they screen is a two-reel or 20-minute short based on the very book Benchley wanted Walt to adapt, The Reluctant Dragon. And then we move into the actual Reluctant Dragon segment. 
Uh, anything you'd like to say about the live action sequences before no, we move I, on? I or? do greatly enjoy <clears throat> seeing a lot of the stuff and learning about. Yeah. I'm going to have more to say about it when I get to my overall score, yeah. but I, I also find watching the behind the scenes fascinating. I think eh, we'll get into it at the end. Okay. Yeah. So we move into the Reluctant Dragon segment. And the cartoon starts with an introduction by the narrator of the story. One of the main characters, the boy, is reading a book about knights and bloodthirsty dragons, and he is introduced. His father comes rushing by, claiming to have seen a monster. The boy reassures his father that it was only a dragon, to which the father panics and runs to the, vil- to the village in fear. The boy then goes to the dragon's lair, where he is confronted not by a ferocious beast, but by a shy, poetry-spouting creature. The boy is surprised at seeing what a nice creature the dragon is and befriends him. When he arrives back at the village, the boy discovers that Sir Giles, the dragon slayer, has arrived. He runs to tell the dragon that he should fight him, only to be left disappointed when the dragon announces that he never fights. The boy visits Sir Giles, and it is revealed that Sir Giles is an old man. The boy tells Sir Giles that the dragon will never fight, and they decide to visit him. Sir Giles and the boy visit the dragon while he is having a picnic. (laughs) It turns... It turns out that Sir Giles also loves to make up poetry, so the dragon and Sir Giles serenade each other. The boy then asks if he could recite a poem of his own. From this, he uses his chance to get a word in edgewise and to shout at them to arrange a fight. The dragon leaves, but is persuaded back out of his cave when he is flattered by Sir Giles. Sir Giles and the dragon eventually decide to fight, but as Sir Giles and the boy leave, the dragon has second thoughts. The next day... The villagers gather to watch the fight. Sir Giles arrives, waiting for the dragon. I think it's funny, too, how um, when they do fight, some people are cheering for Sir Giles and other people are cheering for the dragon. Like, Like people don't like Sir Giles. No, I guess not. Inside the cave, the dragon is too scared to fight and cannot breathe fire. An insult from the boy leads to the dragon getting angry and eventually spitting flames. The dragon jumps for joy as he is now ferocious. The fight ensues with Sir Giles chasing the the dragon around with his sword and into the cave, where they drink tea and make noises to make it seem as though they are fighting. Out in the open, they charge at each other, creating an enormous cloud. And at this point, I wrote down that I love how ticked off uh, Sir Giles' horse looks uh, over the fake fight. Like, he's just laying there, like, "Mm," like, I'm so mad about this, because they crashed into each other and everything. Inside uh, that cloud... They dance, and Sir Giles reveals that it is time for the dragon to be slain, but only to pretend, to which the dragon gets excited. Sir Giles places his lance under the dragon's arm, then the dragon jumps out of the cloud and performs a dramatic death scene. The story ends with the dragon being accepted into society, to which the dragon recites a poem. I promise not to rant or roar and scourge the countryside anymore. Not that he was scourging the countryside anyway. No. And then we move into the... You know what I will say? Oh, go ahead. I did think it was a cute little, like, section. It just felt like it was going on too long. Yeah. Like, for some reason, it felt very slow. Like, it needed a bit more snappy. It almost reminds me of how I feel about, like, the Mr. Toad sequence. Like, it just kept going. It's like, okay, I, I understand the point of this. Let's, let's go. I agree 100%. And... From that, we move into the closing segment of the film, which uh, the film closes on Benchley and his wife driving home. She harangues him for fa- failing to sell the movie and that di- and that by dilly-dallying, 
eventually missed his chance to sell the rights, which they don't own the rights to this movie, right? but whatever. With Disney having already produced a film, he uh, he responds by answering Fooey in the style of Donald Duck. So I have some things here about the songs, but really most of it's just background music. And I looked up the Reluctant Dragon song, and it's just the movie itself, because the movie rhymes, yeah. like all the characters speak and rhyme and everything. I do have some trivia about the film, and I found this one very fascinating. Portions of the film had to be redone because of objections by the Hayes office. The dragon was originally drawn with a navel, which had to be removed before the film could be passed. Now, if you're sitting there going, what's the Hayes office? Well, the Hayes office, or the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, was an organization that enforced a quote-unquote moral code for films between the years 1922 and 1966. William H. Hayes was the founder and strictly enforced censorship in American-made films in an attempt to avoid U.S. government censorship. Although Hayes was, oh man, he got into that character, he had a very shady background. There were issues with the pre-Hayes office years with films depicting violence, language, and varying degrees of nudity that American audiences of the time found unsettling. Hayes uh, was also a lawyer who would blacklist actors, writers, directors, and producers whom he, he deemed violated morality clauses in their film contracts. From 1966 onward, we have a voluntary rating system. That's where we got the, you know, G, PG, PG-13, mm. etc. Many critics have surmised that the dragon is essentially a gay stereotype. This might explain the warning at the beginning of the, of, uh, at the, beginning of the Disney Plus version of the film explaining that it was an outdated cultural depiction. However, and I agree with this, the warning more so applies to the racial stereotypes in the film, particularly in the Baby Weems segment. Do yeah, you... I... I don't know. What do you want to say? Do you, do you want to go into our overall scores, or do you have anything you want to say about No, I think we can go into our overall scores. Okay, all right. So I wrote down that I found the live-action segment of this movie interesting, but it went on a little too long. Some of the humor still works, but a lot of it is cringe today. In particular, the uncomfortable flirting of an older, out-of-shape man with a young woman, and of course, the racist depictions of Asian and African characters. It is unfortunate that the live-action segment depends on showing the animated segment, because I think they would be better as separate shorts. The Reluctant, segment, the, the reluctant Dragon seg segment has bouncy, but entertaining animation. I don't really like that, you know, curvy animation style that they have mm -hmm. in it um and i don't agree with the racism or excuse me i don't agree with the criticism that the dragon is supposed to be a gay stereotype i think he's just a feminine but not necessarily gay it is interesting to go back and watch uh this older style disney film but i'm glad that in our podcast series we've moved on to the more iconic disney classics also during the credits on disney plus it recommended for me to watch walt and el uh, El Gropo uh, next, which is a documentary about the U.S. government about when the U.S. government sent Walt Disney to South America on a goodwill tour. It's a 2009 documentary, mm -hmm. and uh, this was where Saludos Amigos comes from. Uh, that interests me, and perhaps we'll cover it at some point. But you, the audience, let us know if you'd be interested in hearing us discuss a documentary on Disney+. Plus. I got that recommendation, too, and was like, interesting. Yeah. So I don't remember getting that after watching Saludos Amigos, which would make yeah. more sense to get that. Agreed. Um, but, you know, you, uh, and if you want to want, forget what the audience wants, if you want to discuss it, we I'd can discuss it. I'd be down for it, if okay. that's something. Well, at some point, we'll cover that, then. 
Overall, though, I give The Reluctant Dragon a 4.5 out of 10. You know what? I didn't know what to expect going into this, because I think we both mentioned we didn't, we, neither one of us had watched this before, so this was one of those. It's one of those rare things that, like, neither of us has either About, experience yeah. with. Um, it's weird going back to watch all these, like, older things now that we've kind of shucked along already and kind of made it past. I also find it funny that people didn't like this as, like, a package film, when literally what's coming up is a lot of package films after this, mm-hmm. like, within the years. So that's fascinating. Um, I definitely like the documentary segment of this. I don't know how I feel about the Reluctant Dragon thing. Again, it feels like almost divorced from it and feels like it should be part of one of those package film deals, like a proper package film thing. And then we could have just kept the other animated segments, even though they're awful, but could have kept them in, you know, as better like explanation for this is how animating works and this is at this step. And maybe even, I think it would have been better if we got it, like, them showing, like, maybe the goofy segment all the way through from, like, sound, Mm. drawing, like, if you were seeing every step of the same film, not, like, different films. That'd be interesting. Although they they couldn't do the voice acting part, because... Yeah, for that. So maybe not the goofy one, but, you know, for, like, something else. Yeah, yeah. No, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But I think I would give this, like, a 5 out of 10. Like, I didn't hate it, but I, mm. I think the things I like about it are better separate from each other, so... Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned it should be part of the package films, because in the part that I skipped over about the home releases... Uh, it is part of the yeah. package films. I think yeah. It's all, yeah, it's, it was part of the Mr. Toad and Fun and Fancy Free Blu-ray in yeah. 2014. Yeah. So, they've learned their lesson, I guess, where to, where to put this movie. Uh, or at least the animated segment of this movie, which that works on its own. But like I said, I, I, and obviously we can't do this, but I wish there was an alternate version where Walt says, like he says, oh, you should make, uh, excuse me, Benchley says you should make this into a movie. And Walt says, we're going to, and we'll watch it right now. And then it's just Benchley going home with his wife and you can watch them separately. Like you don't have to watch the reluctant, like, cause I, I think they're both fine, but it's too long with the two uh, different types of segments together, in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely a long movie. Yeah, even though it's only 74 minutes, it's still... It feels so much longer, and I don't know what about it is why it feels that way, but it does. I think it's because we, we know that... Mm, I don't know. I feel like it maybe because we've already watched this live-action segment, which is interesting on its own, and now we're going to watch an animated thing, too. Like I, like I said... Sep- and a long animated thing. Like, it's not like a little five-minute animated thing where you're like, oh, that was cute. Yeah. But, like you said, I gave it a 4.5. You gave it a 5. It's average. It's in the middle. It's nothing terrible except, you know, some caricatures of... Uh, Which is honestly, you know, they're still worse yeah. that Disney has given us, I oh, feel. so. Even in modern history, there's there's still worse. Or at least our I mean, lifetime. they were working on Dumbo on this, and obviously yeah. Dumbo is bad, tragically bad. Yeah. But uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Or? No, not okay. really. Well, this has been the Once Again Podcast. Thank you for joining us on our trip back in time to view this movie. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media accounts, Once Again Pod, all one word, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod. As always, a like, follow, or share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, have a wonderful day, and remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you.
Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description.